This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Daniel Paris, host of the New Books in Finance channel of the New Books Network. I'm very pleased today to have as my guest, Dr. Hassan Malik, author of Bankers and Bolsheviks, International Finance and the Russian Revolution, a new book that just came out from Princeton University Press. Dr. Malik, thank you very much for being uh, with us today. Thank you, Daniel. It's a real privilege. You know, your, your book, for someone who is interested both in Russian history and in finance, I, I found your book particularly interesting because the intersection usually is, there's not much of an intersection uh, in, in the minds of most people. But uh, it, as you have pointed out in your book, uh, a very detailed account, there's actually a lot of material uh, about the finance side of the two decades before the Russian Revolution, and then the uh, the Great Default, which we'll get to, kind of the denouement uh, of the Bolsheviks in January 2018. That's uh, you know generally not part of of the narrative, uh, but is uh, uh, you know an important part of the story. How did you come upon this uh, as as a topic? And you know, it's rare for many dissertations to be, frankly, substantially new. Uh, this this I enjoyed reading because it, it uh, even though I have a PhD in Russian history, a lot of what you wrote was new. Well, that's that's great to hear. Um, yeah, so basically the the topic and and the subject came to me as I was working in finance in in Moscow. I had uh, uh, been working on Wall Street for a few years out of college, um, covering the U.S. and European markets, but had learned Russian in college, uh, had an interest in the country, and had moved out to work for the largest uh, bank in in Moscow at the time. And really, living in central Moscow in those days was fascinating for me because I was walking around the old town and it was while well, you could see the hammers and sickles and all the signs of the communist past and certainly all the signs of post-communist Russia, um, many of the buildings pre-revolution in central Moscow had to do with, with, uh, with the pre-revolutionary financial past. In fact, the Lubyanka, which was a stone's throw from my flat in my office and was infamous as the headquarters of the KGB, was in its first guise an insurance company. Um, and so that set me on this path of trying to understand what was happening um, before the revolution from a financial angle. Uh, and the more I read about it, the more I was struck by how little had been written about this Russian financial boom and bust, uh, even in global financial history, where we hear about the German hyperinflation, where we hear about the Dutch tulip mania. For some reason, Russia had been kind of overlooked in all of this. I, I agree. And, you know, the the assumption in the ideological assumption, and I have to say, after 20 years of leaving, 20 years after leaving uh, academia, um, the uh, kind of ideological bias in academia is <laughs> fairly anti-financial, anti-capitalist. It, it yep. is what it is. Uh, I can see that clearly now. I might not have seen it at the time, but this was not a topic that would have been viewed uh, uh, with, uh, you know, uh, positively, I think, by, by many people uh, heading in. Uh, you know the the kind of the finance side of Russia uh, uh, before the revolution and, and and during the revolution. Uh, so I I I 
I, I appreciate you picking up that that topic. You do in the in the first part of the book deal with some of the material that I did have to encounter, but you take a fresh take on it. So uh, there are debates in Russian history, as everyone is taught who goes through that, about you know uh, Sergei Vita and and what he did not do or did do, and how modernizing it was or was not. And then of course the famous uh, debate uh, on the eve of the Russian Revolution concerning the economic condition of Russia uh, uh, and the the Hameson debate. So can you take us a little bit through those kind of finance debates and the finance reality of uh, the czarist regimes, I wouldn't call it dependence, but relationship with the French markets, lack of relationship with some of the other markets and how they fit into your kind of fresh take from this perspective on Sergei Vita and also on the uh, Russia's condition in the uh, years between the Russian revolution of 1905 and the outbreak of World War One. Sure. So the way Vite is talked about in the literature is as really a, a, a modernizing, uh, industrializing force in, in pre-revolutionary Russian society. So just a, a bit of background for the audience. Um, he was very much a technocrat, uh, came up through the railroad bureaucracy in, in Russia, and was eventually... Um, put in the post of, of uh, finance minister and really launched a program of tapping the international bond market um, and using the proceeds to build up Russia's foreign exchange reserves, ultimately bringing Russia to the gold standard, and also using foreign capital to help drive Russian industrialization, particularly through the railroad sector and heavy industry. Um, and what I talk about in the first uh, chapter of the book is the predecessors and, and the legacy that Vite drew on uh, from his predecessors um, and make the point that basically he was in some ways actually quite a latecomer to the, the policy that I've just sketched out uh, and, and somewhat of a late convert. Um, and so one point I make is that this is a story that's very much about Vite, but also goes well beyond him. Um, another point that you mentioned, and I think is, is crucial here, and I think this, again, comes from um, having looked at companies and and, and uh, sovereign debt issuers as, as countries, uh, and thinking about sources of funding and diversity of funding. And of course, I was writing this through various gyrations of, of financial markets. And I think this is something that goes unremarked in in, um, in some of the, the literature on, on Vitz's period, which is that he became very dependent on the French capital market. And, and France at the time had one of the highest savings rates in, in Europe. And so in many ways, there, there, was, there was a lot of wisdom to Vitz's strategy. Um, and there was a diplomatic component of, of this um, borrowing program in, in the sense that um, Russia and Germany had a, had a hot and cold rivalry and the French and the Germans were not uh, were, were very much adversaries. Um, and so there was a diplomatic component to that. But I think one of the lost opportunities of this time, and this is something that I go into in, in the second chapter as well, is Vite, in a sense, for all his wisdom in terms of seeing the opportunities internationally and using international money markets to finance Russian industrialization also missed the shift in global finance that was happening from Paris to London and ultimately to New York. Um, and this was an oversight that ended up costing Russia quite dearly later on um, when they needed Anglo-American capital um, and found, found it harder to get because they just hadn't built that brand name within the, the British and, and to New York markets. This is one of the things that I found 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 so uh, interesting in your work was that uh, 
you know, in, in the modern age, we think of finance as algorithmic, and uh, it, to some extent, it is. Everything's kind of uh, computer driven, but the age of the personal banker and the mm. personal relationship really comes out in here. The French were, or the Russians were, very comfortable dealing with the French. Clearly. You know, the English were were less so, and then the Americans were almost uh, uh, off the radar screen for them. And uh, Morgan kind of feels the same way about the Russians. He's somewhat wary, but uh, that the uh, it was a conscious, cultural, subjective choice. It wasn't a uh, a system in equilibrium, which is the standard model that we all operate on under for finance. Now, this was a personal relationship. It certainly wasn't in a, a system of personal relationships and certainly not an equilibrium system. Otherwise, they wouldn't have been entirely uh, dependent or, or mostly using uh, French capital. That's absolutely right. I mean, th- this is very much a human story. And I guess from the academic angle, one of the things that I was trying to do was bring a human dimension to a very extensive literature in the social sciences on what drives capital flows, what drives investors to invest in developing countries. Um, So there's been a lot of uh, economics and political science literature on this. But what I find missing in a lot of that work is precisely this human dimension, that ultimately these were humans making decisions and humans deciding which factors to weight more and, and less. And and frankly, that's something that even if you look at emerging markets today, whether it's Brazil or Turkey or, or, or India, uh, I think it's still something that's very much present with us uh, today in the age of AI and computers and finance. I couldn't uh, agree with you more, and I would be even more uh, direct, and this may not be relevant to all of sort of the academic history listeners, but even if you look at the relationship between Jay Powell and Donald Trump yep. uh, and uh, any of – and what happened uh, – this is this is being recorded in late December, but there was an interview uh, yesterday, the day before, in the markets by one of the uh, the New York Fed governor, Williams, and simple <laughs> markets for all of the computers that are supposed to be keeping score, the markets are still substantially driven by – uh, people, personalities, and comments. And it's not just emerging markets. Uh, I think it is even the developed markets are surprisingly less machine-like, less systems in equilibrium, the way they are uh, described by by macroeconomists, than, uh, you know, not necessarily living, breathing creatures, but uh, substantially driven by, by these personal factors. And seeing it described about a market 100 years ago uh, made me think how much it's still actually that that way today. Absolutely. So in, in addition to the kind of uh, getting around Sergei Vita and, and the French dependence and slowly uh, uh, building up the relationship with the, the British and the Americans, there's also a lot of material early on in the book, part of some well, I wouldn't say well-worn, but, but you know, important uh, articulated debates about the state of Russians, of Russians' economy, how even or uneven it was, and uh, you know, you're you're chiming in with your views, and this leads into what broadly, very broadly speaking, that the Hameson debate, that is, would Russia have gotten through without World War One, uh, or not? You know, how how robust and uh, uh, trustworthy was the Russian economy in the decade, decade and a half before World War One? And you know, you you're bringing at least for me a, a fresh take on that. Right. So I, I, I think um, uh, basically what, 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 what the book sketches out is you have this very extreme crisis where Russia is, is 
pushed to the wall financially and militarily in 1904-1905. And then you you have kind of an injection of foreign capital, which helps stabilize the regime. And and you see a remarkable decade-long rally in Russian asset prices in the financial markets as well as in the real economy. But by the eve of the war, you start to see, and this is you know, when I'm reading the bankers' reports, when I'm reading diplomatic cables at the time, and and when you're looking at some of the macro numbers, you're starting to see uh, strains of of a, um, um, of a of a of a financial crisis brewing in Russia, and it's exactly around that same time that you see an injection of. Um, uh, of of essentially fiscal stimulus through uh, a ramp up in defense spending uh, mm-hmm. from the Russian state that actually helps stave off um, this this potentially disastrous uh, financial crisis and I think that's where it touches on some of the the. Uh, the the old more traditional debate about Russian politics and and the timing of the actual revolutionary outbreak. You know, there's again, there's parallels in the United States with the depression and and uh, you know what brings us out of the depression, World War II. You know, uh, there's a softer version of this in regard to Russia and that the the spending of World War One, uh, you know, does it buy us time? Does it buy Russia time? Or is Russia more fragile, less fragile as a result of, uh, of the war? And uh, you know, would Russia have made it as a, a bourgeois society? A rev- you know, after the first revolution, unlikely, but would they have made it uh, had it not been for the war? And and you know that a lot of graduate students spend a lot of time arguing about that. I don't know how important that is at this point in time, but that is uh, kind of that standard debate. You know, was was the Russian Revolution an aberration or was it inevitable? And you're you're you know kind of filling in some of the uh, space around the financial elements of that, at least from my perspective. Yeah, exactly. And 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 you know the the basic point that I make is that the war bought, and, and that's. That's kind of a, a theme through through a couple of these uh, inflection points. Is that finance uh, and 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 the economic dimension shows that the regime bought some some time in the immediate sense, but at uh, some significant cost down the road. Um, yeah. So let's let's uh, kind of move on to to World War One, mm-hmm. and um, you know the lead up to the revolution. And here, some of the story shifts to at least from my perspective, fascinating the perceptions by the Western bankers, French, English, and American, uh, as to you know uh, in retrospect we see World War One Barbara Tuckman like as kind of a total wipeout, and the people involved didn't see it coming at all and uh you know in august 1914 everything's fine and just a few years later europe's in 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 a a rubble heap and uh the the russians and the western financiers dealing with the russians pretty much fit into that narrative surprisingly up to even January uh, 1918, that is, they are oblivious to the risks of this war to a, you know, uh, uh, surprising degree, unless, uh, you know, did you agree with that summary version or is that not, is that stating it too strongly? No, I think that's very fair. And I think where where I come from this is really with a very sympathetic and empathetic uh, view uh, to these people, because when I started the research for this book, it was really right after the the 08 financial blow up in, in, in more recent times. And 
understand and and i i think i had a, a sensitivity to the difficulty that investors face when they're trying to read the tea leaves of not only global financial markets but also all the geopolitics that play into this um and what was what was interesting to me was that this wasn't in in some ways um the war, uh, as well as the default, were not, and as well as the Bolshevik Revolution, were not bolts from the blue. These were not completely unknowns, unknowns. But this was really a failure of some financiers to accurately or or properly weigh the different pieces of information they were they were getting. So there were, um, you know, one of the one of the figures that I point to is Cecil Spring Rice, who was a rising star in the British Foreign Office, who had actually raised some of the concerns about um, you know the the willingness of successor regimes to the czar to to uphold uh, their their financial obligations and ultimately to repudiate and actually I saw some of this stuff in banking archives in London uh, in particular uh, but the bankers confronted with this huge amount of different, uh, you know, readings of the market and readings of the political situation just didn't weigh that uh, as much as they may have wanted to in retrospect. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. And, you know, they're not alone. Very few people, um, you know, wars and revolutions are frequent in Europe, but but people didn't, they're hard to see at the time. And uh, World War One, and then the the uh, Tsarist regime failing first, and again, there you know there was some, as you point out, and many pointed out, thought that you know the spring of 1917 is a good thing, and and everything was going to work out nicely. That was a positive step that the provisional government would be better rather than worse. But people just don't see the the risk associated with uh, the, these events at the time. And again, you have uh, you have a number of uh, these are kind of uh, the anecdotal level, but uh, interesting of a number of Western institutions getting involved with, including National City, getting involved with Russia during the war and during the revolution, including uh, the revolution of uh, the spring revolution uh, and uh, bringing in the provisional government, but you know, opening up branches and having plans to expand their operations in 1917 in Russia from an American bank. That, that anecdote is, is wonderful. I don't know if you want to you know, provide some color around that. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it was one of my my favorite uh, things to research. Actually, uh, National City is is a direct forerunner to today's Citigroup, and uh, they had expanded. Um, it, they were in the process of expanding internationally. They had made big moves in Latin America. Were probing the Asian markets, but Russia was really one of the pillars of their international expansion. And they'd sent a um, a sort of jack of all trades, veteran of emerging markets banker to Russia to study the scene to meet with the policymakers, with industrialists, with fellow bankers. And he basically came to the conclusion in early or in late 1916 that the bank should be opening uh, in in St. Petersburg. Uh, They do that in early 1917. And really, even after the czar abdicates in what was known as the February Revolution, when um, he's, he's set aside and 
liberal forces um, tr- try and, and move Russia towards a, a constitutional regime, um, you know, there was a lot of hope. And it again, it, it, it strikes a chord with both things that I've seen in Russia more recently, as well as in, in, in other markets. So one of the themes that you've, you've just sort of touched on is this notion that anything that was moving away from czarism was seen as progress at the time. And if you look at what journalists and commentators were writing about Russia, uh, many of the tropes that you see talked about Russia today, the, the bureaucracy, corruption, police states, um, lack of democracy, many of these things that have been ascribed either to Putin or to the Soviet uh, legacy were actually being ascribed to czarism. And so at the time, there's this great hope uh, amongst many observers, including bankers, that any change from czarism would be a positive thing. And again, this was something that I was reading about and researching at the time of the Egyptian revolution and the Arab Spring, uh, which in 2010, 2011 held out a lot of hope. Um, And many of these hopes were then later dashed in Egypt and elsewhere. Mm-hmm. And then uh, the uh, even more surprisingly is this notion that uh, as the Bolsheviks move to the fore and, you know, people just cannot conceive of the notion that, that you know, this could go really south uh, for their bonds. And do you want to describe a little bit the, the emergence of the, of, uh, the Bolsheviks who are out of power until until the moment they're in power, but uh, you know their emerging sense from Lenin's writings on the topic to uh, more bureaucratic observations as to what their emerging view of a modern government's finance would be. I think it's particularly finance, uh, an undertreated topic about how the how the Bolsheviks would handle the practicalities of government, uh, and and then you know it's one thing to be an ideologue and to say well you know, we don't care about this whole system that's going away. It's another thing to say, hmm, how are we going to pay the workers, that type of thing? And what do we do about all this paperwork that we inherit from the uh, from the provisional government? Sure. So one of the things that I, I was really found interesting when I was uh, reading and researching on, on the book was uh, looking at the Bolshevik um, writings and speeches and positions on the whole question of the debt from, from really a fresh angle. Because I, like many people, had almost been kind of uh, uh, imbibed with this notion that, of course, the Bolsheviks are going to default. And this, this also this sense, given what happened in the Soviet Union later, that they were just hapless and, and didn't understand financial markets. And this was just a, a, a knee-jerk ideological response. Whereas actually, I think if one looks at some of Lenin's writings, uh, you know, around the time of the revolution on questions of finance, he was, in my mind, a very perceptive and astute student of uh, financial markets and public uh, finance in particular. And he understood, and one of the points I make in, in even earlier chapters is that he was using finance as a weapon. And it, just as there were fighting in the streets, just as there were fighting in the debating chambers and in, 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 in the newspapers, the Bolsheviks were also fighting against the regime in financial markets. And so a lot of their positions were deliberate attempts to discredit um, the provisional government, which had replaced the czarist government um, from a financial market standpoint to reduce its credibility. And he was constantly critiquing them. So that was sort of the first stage prior to assuming power. And then 
you know, but that this- stage is important because again, we have a, a one of the risks of being a, a historian or a bad historian is that you just assume the outcome was inevitable. Right. And what that shows is that the outcome, say repudiation of debts, a particular path was not inevitable. That uh, Lenin and the others were. You know, hey, you know, here are the options. Uh, yeah, sure, we have a preference, but we don't know how this is going to work out either. And uh, we're we're kind of working through these options, and th- that I thought was fascinating. Yeah, yeah. So this was you're absolutely right. There were uh, there were debates um, within the party, within within the high high party leadership, and what ends up happening is um, they. You know, they take power through what was essentially a, a coup d'etat, as, as their own uh, party historians uh, termed it in, in Russian. And you have this odd situation where they almost didn't really expect to to have succeeded. And you have uh, the first couple of months um, of the of the Bolshevik government, if you read the, as I did, the, the minutes of the... Uh, um, the, of essentially the Bolshevik cabinet, um, they're confronted with just the basic mechanics. And I think you sort of alluded to this of running one of the largest countries on earth, um, mm-hmm, making mm-hmm. payments to the employees, trying to get the central bank and the, and just the issue money. System. Yeah, exactly. Just the basic mechanics of, 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 of running, uh, uh, administration of, of such a large uh, entity. You have an anecdote about the central banker simply saying uh, when the, the the Bolsheviks needed simply some cash, and I forget to but to pay some bill, and the central banker simply said no, and uh, the the and uh, I forget exactly how that played out, but there was a back and forth if you if you recall that was you know stunning if you think about how modern go- governments work, and again here was an individual just standing saying no. Exactly. And you had the first the first crisis that the Bolsheviks were dealing with was that the post and telegraph workers went on strike. Uh, the central bank uh, or the banking, uh, the, the, the finance ministry and the central bank's clerks went on strike. And so you, you have these highly, um, you know, um, radical and very violent people that have taken power of, of government, but are basically pleading with minor uh, government functionaries to come back to work so that they can it literally start the trains running again. Um, and, you know, eventually through a mix of coercion and uh, carrot and stick tactics, uh, they, they are ultimately able to seize the reins of, of, of state. Um, and then you have this, uh, this real um, question of what happens with the foreign loans, with the domestic and the foreign loans. And this is where I think the pragmatic element um, comes into play, which is often uh, just sort of dismissed in discussions of the Bolsheviks just having been ideologically predisposed to default. And what I basically think through is the counterfactual of what would have happened. Well, there's two aspects. One is what did default do for the Bolsheviks pragmatically? And I think there, there's a very clear um, benefit to the Bolsheviks in the sense of winning support from the peasantry, which of course was not um, the the natural ally of the Bolsheviks. The Bolsheviks were, you know- uh, The urban uh, party. Urban party, a lot of intelligentsia. They're not really a peasant party, and you have them essentially say that, "Hey, we're gonna we're gonna uh, rip up all these debt contracts that peasants own owe to to landowners and the government," which is obviously a way of which has the benefit of of um, 
winning them some sympathy from the peasantry. But then the other question for me was the counterfactual, which is that, as you know, as a historian of Russia, the Bolshevik revolution, that that coup um, in, in October was a very closely run thing. I mean, there was a point where Lenin is stopped on the way to meet the rest of the Bolshevik high command, and he's mistaken, uh, the, he's, he's disguised as a drunk. And had he been stopped at that point and arrested, uh, it's a big question of whether or not that coup would have succeeded. And then, which begs the question of what would have happened had it been an alternative government that would have seen out the end of 1917. And that's where my contention is that you would have probably seen a massive default anyway. It may not have been a total repudiation the way the Bolsheviks did. And I think that's one of the distinctions they had versus other potential uh, regimes. But you would have still seen a massive default because by late 1917, even though you'd seen a wartime boom in the early part of the war because of war spending, like you saw in many places. By the end, the the real economy was really suffering in Russia. And, and there was a statistic where I think the the average housewife in St. Petersburg was sending, spending something like 40 hours a week just waiting in line for basic necessities. Um, and so that's where I think that the counterfactual is, is that, you know, from a pragmatic standpoint, any regime would have probably had to default. So there, there's also I, there's some nice little ideological tidbits there as the debate is going on. That is the uh, there's a perception that it is uh, mostly French money, and so why should we uh, repay these French bronze, so the French bourgeoisie? Uh, uh, but you, I, I, and I forget, for, correct me whether there was any domestic subscription to these loans. That there's some small portion, if I'm not mistaken, of the repudiation of the debt would have been to domestic savers, albeit a small portion. But there was a risk associated with that. Uh, it's not just the borrowers, but also the savers in Russia. The borrowers were going to be helped, but the savers were going to be punished in Russia by uh, uh, by the repudiation of of the state debt. Is that is that not correct? That's absolutely right. And and one of actually the interesting things about these bonds is that. These bonds would basically be illegal for U.S. citizens today to hold because they were bearer bonds. And these were essentially pieces of paper with no central registry of who owned them. So literally the way you would get paid is you take this piece of paper to uh, the, the appropriate bank in London or Paris or, or, or Berlin. It didn't really matter. And you would be paid in the local currency of that country um, you know, in a gold equivalent amount. It's a pure, pure bearer bond. It doesn't matter who, who's bringing it in. Exactly. So we actually have no idea of what the exact split geographically or otherwise was in terms of the holdings of these bonds. But it's totally, um, it's it's very, very likely that there were a substantial number of Russian holders of this paper. And the Bolsheviks basically, they did a couple of things. The first is that they tried to play play a game with these guys, with the Russian holders and said, look, what we want to do is we just want to register who owns these bonds and other other financial assets so that we can pay you and we make sure that you're not... Um, <laughs> You're not cheated, which obviously has the benefit of telling them exactly where <laughs> where the holdings lie right. so that they can expropriate. Um, and the other thing that they did was they made a small provision, which they said that any – and I forget what the exact amount was, but it was anyone who holds under a certain amount is going to be paid. But of course, with the wartime inflation, it didn't, um, matter. Yeah. It didn't matter. That was essentially a tax on, on everyone. 
Right. So there, there's this drama, but again, what I like about it is the absence of your history is the absence of inevitability, though you say they probably would have defaulted counterfactually, but the fact there was a process, it wasn't just, hey, we're Bolsheviks, we reject your system, we're defaulting. There was a process by which they thought about it, pros and cons, back and forth and degree, which again is history as it should be, not just uh, backward looking, hey, the Bolsheviks, they're going to default. And and the same thing, logic, I think, applies to the actual mechanism of default uh, in uh, – uh, you know, between November uh, uh, 1917 and, and through January, February of, of, of uh, 1918, how there, it, you know, it, it's not just there's a Savnarkom uh, uh, resolution, but there's a lot more to it, and you know, a, a little bit of high drama, I suppose. Uh, do you want to kind of you know highlight the the highlights of that? Right. So there was this kind of uh, b- back and forth in terms of. As you've, as you've alluded, within the party, within the hierarchy, debates of should we nationalize, should we uh, should we uh, expropriate financial assets, should we create exceptions, should we? And as you as you as you mentioned, the Sovnarkom, the essentially the Bolshevik cabinet is going through these discussions and the the strikes that they're being confronted with and the practicalities of trying to take over the machinery of states start pushing them to and fro. Um, and there's, there's, there's of course, in the financial markets, uh, there's all sorts of rumor mongering about what is actually happening. Um, some people are saying, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's default is, is inevitable. It's going to happen. Other people are saying there's no way this could happen because this would be complete financial suicide and it makes no sense. I, ironically, uh, with a strong parallel to arguments about how World War One breaking out was was unlikely because it would have been such a catastrophe that it wouldn't have made rational sense. And, and there was a there was a, a very famous Russian uh, Polish industrialist who, who made an argument saying that essentially there is there's no likelihood of a war breaking out because it's just it's financial suicide. Right. And ultimately what ends up happening in the first quarter of 1918 is, you know, you see um, a, a series of bodies that that issue decrees and and ultimately the default is declared um, and what is interesting is that even past that moment of default you have financial market participants just not believing it and um, opening branches in in Vologda and Vladivostok and St Petersburg and Moscow and beautiful buildings Exactly. And not only beautiful buildings, but in the case of National City in in Moscow, it was in the very same hotel, the National Hotel, which is one of the nicest in Moscow, where the Bolsheviks themselves, Lenin and Stalin included, had pitched up uh, after taking over the government. So you literally, it's, it's a hotel with a very small lobby. You would have literally had the American bankers and Lenin and the other Bolsheviks sort of brushing past each other as they went in and out. A, an outstanding moment. I see a movie script uh, <laughs> about that very point. That was actually one of the great uh, – towards the end of the book and the the, uh, the default is playing out. But that's really one of the great moments of the book is uh, the description of, of those bank branches being opened and the implications. And you're sitting there and you're just kind of slapping your forehead and saying, wow, there are people here on very different wavelengths. Uh, <laughs> and yet they're right next to each other at the same time and same place. So that was uh, really uh, really quite – uh, quite a stunning uh, end uh, to the book. Uh, you know, I, 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 as a historian, I have to be uh, cautious about presentism and you know mm-hmm. reading too much from the past and and uh, uh, you know accrued historicism and assuming everything never changes and you know all the answers lie in the past. But as a finance person and a historian, I can't help but 
think about your book and recommend it to others, uh, on, unfortunately, on the basis of current circumstances that, you know, I, I, I do see frailty. I, I'm not a bear market person. I'm not short in a short meaning as uh, for listeners is a, a type of investment where you assume things are going to be going down. I, I am not that at all. But uh, there is uh, in modern finance uh, an assumption that risk has been managed through governments, right. that there are mechanisms to prevent collapse, that economic cyclicality has been substantially dampened that the basis for stable economic and financial growth is well entrenched globally. Yes, periodically Argentina or some other country is going to have difficulties, but the basic system is very stable. And that's uh, an assumption that many market participants without historical backgrounds bring to the table and they go about their business. Nassim Taleb is not one of them, and I am uh, not one of them as well. I'm well aware of historical risks, and uh, I think that uh, your book, uh, Dr. Malik, uh, Bol- uh, Bankers and Bolsheviks, International Finance and the Russian Revolution is, in effect, um, very timely, not because I think any of these, you know, the exact risks are going to play out exactly uh, the way they did 100 years ago, but that uh, investors and uh, participants in the capital markets need to understand that uh, the unexpected can happen. Yeah. No, I mean, I, th- I think you you bring up a very good point in terms of um, the unexpected and, and these big step changes. And one of the one of the themes that um, I think is very important out of this book is the 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 degree to which countries can can completely also break away from, uh, in a sense, their own uh, historical typification by the market. So what I mean by that is Russia at the time, today we think of Russia as an emerging market. It's one of the BRICs. It's it's a developing economy. It's, you know, it's it's finding its way in 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 the global economy as in, on the development ladder. But at the time, Russia was seen as a European great power. It had some of the largest gold reserves in the world. It wasn't seen seen in the same category as say an Egypt or an Argentina or a Brazil. Uh, many of these countries having defaulted um, on many occasions. And you see that actually in the financial market data after the Bolsheviks default, the the risk premium or the the sort of the markets indicators of what of, of stress for Russian assets had spiked. They showed alarm, but they didn't show alarm to the same degree that the market had shown for Greece and Argentina. Uh, whereas, of course, the story ends much worse for investors in Russian assets. And and one of the things that the bankers, to their credit, I mean, they're this is again one of the one of the things that I'm trying to think of the bankers in their own terms. They were looking at history and they were saying, "Hang on, Russia is right now saying they're not going to default, but historically Russia has gone way out of its way to stay stay uh, current on its debts." In fact, one of the bankers that I, I talk about referred to uh, the Crimean War when Russia was fighting with many Western countries, but actually continued to pay Western bondholders in full in gold back rubles uh, on time. And that, that commentator said, look, let's look at the history. Russia actually, um, you know, yeah. Yeah. And, and to your point, it's, it's that thing that, you know, just as much as it's not important to be presentist when we're thinking about history and applying it to financial markets, it's also important, I think, not to use history mechanically. And I think, you know, 
us historians, sometimes we cringe when we see some of these crude rules laid out about, well, when when a certain country breaches a certain debt to GDP number, then there's going to be a financial collapse. Um, it's it's often much more murky and, and not so straightforward deriving le- lessons from history and applying them to the modern world. Indeed. And that that I think that uh, your book does a, a good job to, you know, it, it can be read your book closely. It can also be skimmed, I think, for certain maybe financial market participants who can be helpfully reminded of what you said about, you know, the careful nuances of a uh, uh, of a risk of uh, collapse or a, 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 a borrower's uh, capability or, or well read by the, the historian of Russia trying to fill in some, some blank spaces. But uh, thank you very much, uh, Dr. Malik. It is uh, a very interesting book. Again, that's Bankers and Bolsheviks, International Finance and the Russian Revolution. It is available through uh, all of the standard outlets. And uh, I, I thank you for taking the time to uh, provide us some, uh, with some highlights from the book. Thank you, Daniel. It was a real pleasure. 